You're probably aware of the old statement that a man who is ignorant of history is bound to repeat its mistakes. That's probably overly simplistic. There's more that you might need to be aware of in order to not repeat the mistakes of history than simply history itself, but it still is true. It still is true that there's something about understanding where we have come from that helps us to better interpret the present and helps us to prepare ourselves for the future. And this is why in the word of God, we have history books. We have historical records, historical narratives of what happened. And they're not there just so that we can become students of history, but they're meant to affect our lives in the here and now. And Acts is one such book. Now in the Bible, there's a whole variety of literary genres. We have narratives, we have gospel literature, poetry, proverbs, apocalyptic literature, prophecy, epistle, but we also have history, historical narrative. And the book of Acts is a historical account of select events that happened in the first century church. Obviously, it's not exhaustive. No, no historical book is exhaustive. It cannot possibly record the life of every individual and every nuance of everything that happened in their lives. But it does give us several select events that happened in the first century church. And some of what we're going to see in the book of Acts lends to us prescriptive truth. In other words, it's prescribing for us how we should act and how we should live and what we should preach in the here and now. But some of it is, it also, is also describing. It's just describing for us some events that took place. So we shouldn't assume that our era is exactly like the first century. There's differences between the first century and now. We have a different audience we're trying to reach. There's different religious groups on the scene, etc. But it nevertheless is a beneficial book. It's not just 2,000 years old, completely irrelevant for the here and now. It also is relevant for our lives in 2023. And so we're going to get right into the first chapter today. The first 12 chapters essentially outline, among other things, Jesus' commissioning of the apostles, their work. There's a special focus in the first 12 chapters on the work of the apostle Peter. And the conversions that they saw as a result of their ministry, their pushback against officials that were trying to get them to compromise and how they responded to persecutions. So that's more or less the, a summary of the first 12 chapters. So let's get right into it. Acts chapter one, beginning with verse one, reads as follows. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So if you look at this first cluster of verses, you'll notice that there's an emphasis on the historicity of scripture. He talks about a previous book that he had written he mentions the fact that he has dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He references the historical work that Christ had given to the, commit, to, the, to the apostles. And he uses the word proofs. 
So this book clearly is intending to present to us a historical record. It's not presenting itself as mythological. It's not presenting itself as poetic. It's not presenting itself as apocalyptic. It's not meant to be taken as anything other than literal. It's a historical narrative of God's work in the early church. Now we have at the end of verse three, the term, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, refers to his entire rule. In some sense, whenever you, t- you hear Christ speaking about the kingdom of God, what you're actually hearing him speak to is the macro gospel. We often think of the gospel in terms of how does God save individuals? And that's, a, that's something we have to talk about. I will talk about that this morning. But the broader gospel is very simply, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and you need to submit yourself to him. That's the the bedrock, the basis of the call to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse four, the writer goes on to state, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, referring to John the Baptist ministry, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the first truth I'd like to emphasize in this text is that when we read the word of God, we can trust the historicity of scripture. We can trust the historical factuality of scripture. In an orderly way, Luke, who's the writer of this book, addresses a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, if you flip back in your Bible to Luke chapter one, verse, chapter one, verse three, Theophilus is also mentioned there. Luke's name is not mentioned in Acts but because we know who wrote the gospel of Luke. Luke and Acts are sort of like two volumes. One is gospel, one is historical narrative. They're both written in a more sophisticated form of Koine Greek. Luke was a scholarly individual as far as we can tell. His Greek is very sophisticated and precise. So he was the kind of guy that did a good job writing out uh, these records of life in the early church and of course the ministry of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. Now the word Theophilus is interesting. It literally means friend of God or loved of God, or beloved of God. We should all want to be that. We should all want to be little Theophiluses, if you will. And there is some debate as to whether this term refers to the whole people of God. He's sort of using the name of an individual to refer to the whole people of God, or whether it was a specific individual, perhaps a person in political office, a person with high rank that he was trying to win over to Jesus Christ. But regardless, all of us should want to be Theophiluses, friends of God. And so Luke is addressing this book to this man or these individuals who bear this name. And he does, in, in, in the gospel of Luke, he records Jesus' teachings fundamentally And in the book of Acts, he records Jesus' teachings through the apostles. So Luke, think of Luke, he's recording the words, the movements, the activities of Jesus. Jesus obviously has ascended to the Father. So in the book of Acts, he's now recording 
how the gospel of Jesus Christ is being communicated out into the world through his choice apostles. There is an emphasis, you'll see this time and time again, it's worth saying in the first sermon of this series, there is an emphasis on apostleship. Sometimes the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. There is an emphasis on apostleship. And in this text, we've already seen that Jesus was the one that appointed the apostles. And we're going to see in a moment that one of the qualifications of a true apostle is to have seen the risen Christ because an apostle by definition is a witness. You don't don't get called to court to bear witness to something that you heard through a friend, through a friend, through a friend, through a former roommate, three times removed. When you're called to court and you're asked to bear witness, the assumption is that you saw it, you experienced it. And so this is why we believe that the apostolic leadership of the church died out in the first century. Jesus appointed them and he appointed them and granted them authority that transcends pastors, elders, deacons, and other Christians in the Christian church. So there's an emphasis on apostolic appointment and apostolic authority. We're gonna see a conversation, further conversation about the ascension of Christ, which is mentioned in this text, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, he's going to refer to what we're going to read about in chapter 2, which is an event called Pentecost. Many of you have probably heard that term. So Pentecost was a Jewish festival, also known as the Feast of Weeks, that took place 50 days or seven Sundays after what we call Easter. And this is when the Holy Spirit of God began to indwell the people of God. And there was a fantastic Seminal event that took place is the spirit of God descended upon the people of God and they could see flames of fire and they had the capacity to speak languages they had never learned. We're going to learn about that. It's a fascinating event. But before we get into all those details, again, I want to emphasize, I want to drive this point home. The book of Acts is not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. Some might suggest that the Bible itself presents itself as a myth. It's meant to be read as myth. But when you read the genre of the Bible, that's clearly not true. It does not present itself as a myth. You may accuse it of being a myth, contrary to its own testimony, but the word of God does not present itself as a myth. It presents itself as historical fact. And what's interesting is if you study some of the opponents of biblical Christianity in the first century, you'd be hard-pressed to ever find one that accused the word of God as being mythological. They debated the claims of Christ. Some of them rejected the the doctrine of God's triunity. Some of them rejected the words of Paul or Peter or his other apostles. But you're not going to find people in the first century saying, oh, the Bible's just a myth. That's a modern fabrication. It's a modern attack on the word of God. The word of God presents itself as historically factual. And so in that respect, we can trust the historicity of scripture. As we read through this, like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. We can trust the historicity of scripture. And we're going to see also God's prophecies being fulfilled in the early church, which is further proof that the word of God is true and trustworthy. 
So we can trust the historicity of scripture. We can also trust the divine timing of God. Look at God's timing as he unfolds his redemptive plan in the, in the first century church. Verse six. So when they had come together, they asked. So this is Jesus' disciples. They're, they're meeting with him. This is post-resurrection, pre-ascension. And they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Just want you to think about that question for a moment. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What's going on here? Well, I think we are seeing some of the sin, some of that desire for recognition, some of that desire for authority demonstrated in the words of these early apostles who were disciples of Christ, there does appear to be some ongoing interest among Jesus' disciples for an earthly kingdom within which they would be bestowed executive privileges. We can read an event earlier in the Gospel of Luke about a couple of the disciples that sort of met with Jesus and they said, hey, uh, when your whole kingdom thing comes about, you think we could have a couple thrones there? Jesus rebukes them. It's the same idea. They're looking for, they don't quite get it. They haven't quite been sanctified or humbled yet. They're looking for what executive privileges might be assigned to them. But what Jesus does is he essentially ignores their question. He ignores their carnality and he reminds them of the sovereign timing of God. He takes their eyes off of themselves and he points them to the sovereign timing and work of God. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And listen to this. This is what the power is for. What's it for? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Your assignment isn't going to be executive privileges in some earthly kingdom. Your assignment is going to be this. You're going to receive an extraordinary gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when you receive that gift, are you going to benefit from it? Sure. But primarily that gift is going to equip you to be my witnesses to a lost and dying world. Notice this emphasis upon service rather than what can Jesus do for me? Which frankly is a mindset that has poisoned much of the modern evangelical church. The church is about me. It's about meeting my needs. It's about my desires, it's about my gifts. It's about my relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, we are fundamentally witnesses of King Jesus. And we need to take that responsibility seriously. It's humbling, but it's also exhilarating. Now he goes on to remind them, having remind them that success in ministry isn't about your position. And then he said these things to them as they were looking on. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So now we have the, the ascension of Jesus Christ, 40 days after his resurrection. They were gazing up into heaven and he said, it said, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Well, we know who they are because 
We met them in the garden. These are angelic messengers from God meant to deliver God's message and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is the clearest, probably earliest declaration, unambiguous declaration that Jesus is coming back. And this is why we believe in what's called the second coming of Christ. It's a cardinal doctrine. It's a fundamental doctrine. To deny it is to deny biblical orthodoxy. We believe Jesus has ascended to the Father and he will come again in glory. So they weren't standing there reading the stars. You can imagine they were kind of blown away by what they had just seen. And so these two angels come and remind them that Jesus will come back. And this is something we need to remind one another of regularly. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Keeps you kind of focused, doesn't it? And it also increases your hope that what we see around us isn't going to last. All the disaster and chaos and sinfulness isn't going to back. There's going to last. There's a fix and his name is Jesus. This is why we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now he will deal with sin. You can read about that in John 5. There's going to be judgment for the righteous and the unrighteous. But in some respects, the sin has already been dealt with. He's already crushed the serpent on the cross. And so he's going to come back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you're a Christian, are you? Are you eagerly waiting for him? I hope you are. It fuels our worship. It fuels our response to the challenges of this world. Now, do we know when Jesus is going to come back? No. Some people have written a few books on that. I remember standing in a church parking lot when I was a kid, maybe 19, I think it was 1984 or 1986, and somebody was handing out these little books. I remember they had white covers and orange font. And it said something like, you know, Jesus is coming back in 1985. Or it was a year, year from whatever the date was that we received this. And this person had written this fanciful, fanciful book that claimed to know the exact timing of Jesus' second coming. Those kind of books deserve to be filed in your circular file, your garbage can. Because the Bible tells us we don't know. Now, I know it, it would be nice to know on a certain level, and some of us may struggle with waiting. Sometimes we're like, Jesus, are, are you you're overdue? Like, you seem like you're a little late here. Maybe like a friend of yours that... Uh, habitually shows up late. You know, when you invite people over for dinner, you got to always take into consideration their clock culture. Depending on what culture they come from, some people you got to be on time. For some people, it's totally fine to be 15 minutes late, a half an hour late. We notice that in our church. No matter whether your services are at, we've had services, I think, at 8.30, 9, 9.30, 10, 10.30, 10 45, 11, 11.15, 11.30, 11.45 over the years. People are still late. They just have a different clock culture. 
But Jesus isn't late and he hasn't forgotten us. Just his timing is different than ours. But one thing is for sure, he's coming back. And so we have hope in his return. And at that time, the full display of his victory over sin and death will be evident to all. Dozens of other verses assure this very thing, that there is going to be a second coming of Jesus Christ. You'll also notice in the book of Acts, these are sort of some general comments just to help us to acclimatize to the book, that we can trust the apostolic testimony, especially when it comes to Christ's resurrection. I've already alluded to that. We have apostolic testimony affirming and confirming the literal bodily resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12 Acts, of Acts 1, it says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. You're like, okay, this, this is a little bit weird. Because I know that if you go to Israel and you're on Mount Zion, the city of David, you can just look out and see the Mount of Olives across the valley. It doesn't take a day to walk from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. So why does it say then, is this an error in the text? Why does it say a Sabbath day's journey away? Well, the explanation for this is actually fairly simple, that according to Jewish law, on the Sabbath day, you could only travel one kilometer, what they called 2,000 cubits. And that's about the distance from Mount Zion to the Mount of Olives, about 2,000 cubits. So it's not to be interpreted as they traveled for eight or 10 hours on the Sabbath day, but they traveled a Sabbath day allowance, which was one kilometer. So they moved from the Mount of Olives over to Jerusalem. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. Now that could be the same upper room that Jesus had the last supper with his disciples in, or it could be another upper room, we don't know where they were staying. Now the author then takes time to list out the names of the apostles and typically Peter's name always comes first. So it says Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas. So they were staying there together, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas, just in case you think it's Judas Iscariot, no, it's a different Judas. Judas, the son of James. They were all in one accord that's the first reference to the Honda car in the Bible. And we're devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So we have, if you count the list, we have 11 of them. 11 of the 12 apostles met together. Where's Judas Iscariot? He's killed himself. He bought a field and he killed himself. But there is another Judas, Judas, the son of James, who's also known in other gospel lists as Thaddeus. Now in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. This is interesting. Jesus has 12 original apostles and one of them, betrays him to the authorities. 
He's not a Theophilus. He's an enemy of God. He's not a friend of God. He's an enemy of God. And here we're going to get some insight into how God deals with his enemies. So Peter is preaching and he's going to talk about the judgment that God brought upon Judas and what the reader should be thinking about. I better not try the same thing because if I'm an enemy of God, the same fate awaits me. So he references David, meaning that he's going to refer to a couple of Davidic Psalms who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. What does that tell us? There can be people among us that aren't truly saved, that aren't truly disciples of God. Jesus obviously was aware of it. He calls Judas out at the Last Supper. And that's a fascinating thing, that God allows a betrayer to move among his true disciples. And the same can be true of the can be said of the modern church. There's going to be people who apostatize from the faith or are not true believers. Some of them are false teachers. So there needs to be a bit of a warning flag that's sent up there. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and fell headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. A rather foul description, but a necessary description to help us to understand the fate of a man that betrayed Christ. And it's noteworthy to mention that when he was overcome with his own sin, he didn't go to Jesus for forgiveness, did he? He ran to the governing authorities. He tried to find forgiveness in his religion, didn't find forgiveness in Jesus. So he goes out and he hangs himself and it's grotesque to think, but probably what was happening here is after having hung in the field for a while in the heat of the day, the rope snapped and his body was broken open on the ground. And so the Bible says, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. So here now Peter is going to go back and he's going to quote from two Davidic Psalms. And those Davidic Psalms, if you want to look them up, include Psalm 109.8 and Psalm 69.25. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's from the first Psalm. The second Psalm, let another take his office. So what Peter is not attempting to do here is to necessarily exposit the original meaning and context of Psalm 109 or Psalm 69. But he's borrowing language from those Psalms. This is a little complex, but follow me on this. Written by a Davidic king. The original Davidic king was King David. And King David, at times in his ministry, was under a lot of pressure, under a lot of attack. And he would write psalms about it. And in those psalms, he would lament the efforts of his enemies to take him out. But in those psalms, he would always find comfort knowing that God would protect his anointed, would protect the Davidic king. So in both of these psalms, there's references to David's enemies hundreds of years earlier and declarations that God would make desolate 
the camps of those who are the enemies of the Davidic king, and that God would tear down office bearers that were attacking the true Davidic king. So then you fast forward, who is Jesus Christ? He's the ultimate Davidic king. So what Peter is doing is he's applying the consequences of attacking the original Davidic king to those who would attack the true and final Davidic king, the one born in the line of David, who is King Jesus. That's the exegesis of the text. The practical takeaway is that we are reminded that all enemies of the true king will one day be defeated. If you are an enemy of the true king, one day you will be defeated. But if you are a Theophilus, a friend of God, you will be blessed in his eternal kingdom. Well, we got to talk a little bit more about the apostles. There was 12 of them. Now they're down to 11. So for some reason, they wanted to get back up to 12. And so verse 21 says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, listen to this, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So again, if you're going to replace an apostle, you have to have been a comprehensive witness of everything from the baptism of Jesus Christ right through to his death, burial, and resurrection. So we can have this mental image then that while the 12 were Jesus' immediate apostles, there were often others in their circle that were following and listening in as well. This is why it's inappropriate. It's not heretical, but it's inappropriate for someone to call themselves an apostle in this day and age. Unless you're 2,000 years old and you walked with Jesus Christ. Now you can be a small a apostle. The word simply means sent one. In that respect, we're all small a apostles. We're sent one sent ones, but when it comes to the office of apostle, that's limited in the scriptures to those who have seen the risen Christ. So they're looking for a replacement and they put forward two options. Joseph named Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and another man, Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Jesus turned aside to go to his own place. So they pray first that God would reveal to them who's the guy that's supposed to replace Judas. And then they cast lots for them, which time and time again, you'll see this through the Old Testament. It almost sounds like casino work, but it's not. It was a means prior to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit for the people of God to determine office bearers. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Messiah and he was numbered among the 11 apostles. So again, what is clearly in this text, what is the primary purpose of an apostle? To bear witness, to bear witness like you would in a court, to be a firsthand witness to the resurrected Christ, to his sacrifice and to his victory. It's interesting that only Peter, James, and John will be discussed from here forward in the New Testament. 
But that doesn't mean the other guys just disappeared. They went off and did the work of the ministry in various locations. They went on to minister for Jesus Christ. So they're there. So the number's back up to 12. And we're also told there were other disciples of Christ there. One of them was Mary, his mother, and Jesus' brothers. They are identified in Mark chapter six, verse three, as Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And then of course, later we're introduced to James. So at least four brothers, physical brothers, I guess you'd say half brothers of Jesus are identified in the biblical text. The question then is why 12? Why not just stick with 11? Well, the reason for this is because in all likelihood, those 12 disciples had a symbolic role in God's redemptive plan. They symbolized, if you will, the seeds of a new Israel, a new people of God. You remember when Jacob had 12 sons and those 12 sons formed the 12 tribes of Israel. So time and time again, when you think Israel, you think the 12 tribes, the the tribes are mentioned over and over again. They're, They're one people of God, but there's 12 tribes among them. And so these apostles, in a sense, would symbolize a nucleus, a launch team, if you will, of a New Testament people of God composed of converted Jews, converted Gentiles, who would represent the purposes and ministry of God into a lost and broken world. This is what it means when we're told by Christ in Luke twenty-two, thirty, the other volume to Acts, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a reference to the apostles. They would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's a fascinating parallel there between, there's one people of God, I believe through history, but God's primary efforts under the old covenant were to convert the descendants of Abraham. Were there exceptions to that? Of course. Uriah the Hittite, other Gentiles that would come and see the light and be integrated into the people of God. But now the people of God is a global phenomenon. As Jesus predicted in the Great Commission, that the people of God is composed of Jewish people and Gentiles from all nations. And the apostles were the launch team, if you will, to that movement. They were the seeds of that new movement that God would develop. So others, of course, you might remember were later called apostles in the technical sense of the office. You're like, well, Paul was called an apostle many times. And Barnabas was called an apostle and James is called an apostle. So how do we deal with that? Well, Paul saw the resurrected Christ through a miraculous encounter on the road to Damascus. So it wasn't in the same way that as natural of a way, if you will, that the 12 apostles saw the Lord Jesus Christ, but through a supernatural encounter, Christ revealed his resurrected self to the apostle Paul and appointed him to the office. And then of course we have Barnabas and James. So the, the assumption would be that they had also observed the ministry of Jesus throughout his earthly life. But best as we can tell, come the end of the first century, there was no effort made by the early Christians to replace those 12 apostles. When they died, they died. And the churches were then led by bishops or what we call elders or pastors 
from there forward. I wanna end with a special note here because I, I want this passage to not just be a study in history, but I want there to be some beauty in it that you can take home. I want it to impact you. I want you to be gripped by this insight. There's a special note that needs to be made here in that while Judas, death is laid out for us in graphic detail and two Psalms are referenced, Psalm 109 and Psalm 69 about his demise. Who is the one that God is using to remind God's people that his enemies will one day fail? Who is the human mouthpiece that God uses to remind his people that God's enemies will fail. The apostle Peter, isn't that interesting? What did the apostle Peter do? He wasn't really much better than Judas, was he? And we often emphasize how despicable Judas is. This is why I've never met anybody in the Western world that names their children Judas. If you're going through the baby name book, yeah, we'll skip that one. But oftentimes people name their children Peter. Well, one of them betrayed Christ for money, but the other guy was a coward and he denied him not once, not twice, but three times. But he went to Jesus and he had a conversation with Jesus and Jesus pressed him. He did press him, didn't make it super easy. He pressed him. But eventually we see in Peter brokenness and repentance. And you know what God does when people are broken and repentant? He renews them. He restores them. He's in the restoration business. Things would have worked out different for Judas if he'd have gone to Jesus and repented. I can guarantee you that. But instead he went to religion, corrupt religion, and found there not only a lack of forgiveness, but rejection and isolation. But Peter goes to Christ and is forgiven of his trespasses and sins and so goes on to become one of God's choice spokesmen in the life of the early church. Now he had a fumble a little later on, which Paul had to confront him about in the book of Galatians when he started siding with the Judaizers, the circumcision party as they're called. So he wasn't perfect but he was retread for ministry. He was restored and he was useful to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful reminder that if you have failed, if you have denied the Lord Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Avail yourself of it. Don't hide and pretend that you didn't do it, that you didn't say it, that you failed him. There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. You know what my prayer is? My prayer is that the cowards of the Christian church in Canada who've been outed over the last couple of years would very simply repent. I don't wish them damnation and I don't wish them shame. Just repent. We messed up. We fumbled the ball. We chose fear over faith. Just repent. And God is more than willing to restore us to ministry. Another way of maybe ending this sermon would be to ask, are you a friend of God or an enemy of God? And to be a friend of God does not mean that you are perfect. 
It just means you've repented of your sins and you've met the perfect one who's the Lord Jesus Christ. The means of salvation is simple. Acknowledge his kingship, bow the knee, confess that he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, and imminent return for your sins and you can be forgiven of your sins and become a Theophilus, become a friend of God. That's a beautiful message. Take it to heart and share it with your friends this week. 